Sorry, there's no handout today. Chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish others. The majority text says others there as opposed to one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey, and to be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. And the word material there is a bad translation. It should really be natural. It's a natural, the natural things. Minister to them in natural things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. And the literal language there is who are disobedient. And that my service from Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. Alright, so we've gone through a long series starting out in chapter 12, going through the middle part here of chapter 15, where we've considered the regulated principle of worship. We've considered holy days. We looked at the Ten Commandments as they were embedded in that text by Paul in chapter 13. And in chapters 14 and the beginning of 15, how there are 
things that point to the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments. And so we consider our duties there. Classically, people look at chapters 12 through 16 as the praxology section, the, the section about what practice we should have. So the book of Romans, you have the first 12 chapters. It's all the doctrine. It's a defense of the gospel. It's an apologetic to show how the Christian religion is not some perversion of Judaism, but is instead the continuation of the very religion given to Adam in Genesis 3, the religion given to Abraham, the religion given to Moses, the religion given to David. And it's the same religion. It is the new covenant. It is the promise that was given to Jeremiah. It is the promise that was given to Ezekiel and the promise given to Moses that there would be a new covenant, a new administration that would come. And so what we see in those first 12 chapters, we see laid out the gospel, the first 11 chapters, forgive me, the gospel and the defense of the righteousness of God as being righteous in himself as judge, righteous in terms of he gives his righteousness to his people as an imputed righteousness, He gives His righteousness by sanctifying us, changing us more and more across time. And He is righteous in His predestination of all things in chapter 9. And then in chapters 10 and 11, God's righteous in how He's treated Israel and how He's treated the nations. And so, the righteousness of God on display in our rational service is in chapters 12 through 16. And so the law of God explains that to us, which is why the Apostle Paul quoted the part of how we love our neighbor. He explains that the six commandments from from commandment 5 through commandment 10, that those are the commandments that tell us how to love our neighbor. And so then he goes forward into our duties to God in our spiritual service and our duties to each other rooted in that. And so we continue now in chapter 15. And the thing to be considered here is the goal of spreading the knowledge of God throughout the earth. And so he is taking the word to other nations and he's talking to the Romans and about why he's delayed in coming to them and why he's coming to them now. And at the very end, he asks for the Roman saints to strive together with him in prayer. And so we are able to help each other no matter how far apart we are. We are able to help each other in prayer. And this striving together in prayer is a powerful way that we can serve each other. And I think there's a degree to which this is deeply embedded in Christian culture, which is good. We, how can I pray for you? What, what are the things to be prayed for? Oh, I'll pray for you in that. But I think there's also a way in which we tend to make prayer a not very heavy burden. We tend to pray quickly. I know that when I consider this idea of striving in prayer, I think I do pray. I pray frequently. Typically not for very long. And so striving in prayer, sort of like striving in a race, you could run for a very limited time, but it might be difficult to call that striving if it's a very short burst of running. In prayer, if we're going to strive, if we're going to try hard in prayer, the idea of having some significant effort poured out into prayer is what that leads up to. And so we look at the effort, the striving in trying to spread the knowledge of the truth. I think we emphasize as a local congregation, I emphasize as a preacher, the importance of striving with falsehood by arguing for the truth. But I emphasize far less, and not because 
of my strengths. I emphasize far less the need to strive in prayer. And so the need to strive in prayer, we were reminded by the Apostle Paul of that duty in this text. And so I encourage you to grab hold of that as a major application and to make sure to make note of it, this idea of striving in prayer. We'll talk more as we move towards the end, but that's a major application takeaway from this text, that we can help each other and advance the cause together by striving in prayer. Now, chapter 15, verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that word now is often used as a transition word to say, okay, we've completed that, let's go to the next thing. And we see now in the Bible, it's often a, a thought of, okay, we've completed that. It's almost like a paragraph break. And so the word now is a helpful transition word to go, okay, another thought. There's connection, but we're moving to a new thought. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish others. It's an interesting set of things, right? He has confidence in the Roman saints, he calls them brothers. And what does he have confidence about? He's confident that they are full of goodness, that they are full of knowledge, and that they are able to admonish others. Able to admonish others. Now, being filled with goodness, you know, as, as good Calvinists, I mean, we, we kind of recoil at that. <laughs> Your response is to go, if this weren't the Bible, I'd probably have rebuked somebody saying that. Now, what is being said here? Well, first of all, this is not a statement that these brethren are filled with their own goodness. This is in the context of having had significant teaching about sanctification. This is not talking about justification. This is not saying you're filled with goodness and therefore God considers you good. The righteousness we have in Christ is not a thing that's put into us. We, we can't mix sanctification and say, ah, the infused righteousness that's poured into our souls by the Holy Spirit, that's why we're good in front of God. No. The righteousness that we are counted as righteous by in front of God is a perfect righteousness. It's the external righteousness. It's a crediting. It's a legal thing. It's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ put to our account. It is a robe that covers. It is not the mixing into our souls some goodness by the Holy Spirit so that we're good enough. That is Rome's doctrine of justification. And it makes it so that your personal merit is a basis of your own justification. So the mixing of the righteousness of God into our souls is not how we are justified. The goodness that we are filled with, as opposed to covered by, is that sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And we are filled with goodness as we grow in the knowledge of God and as we learn to apply the truths that have been revealed to us to be able to seek the glory of God and to serve our neighbor. And so that goodness that we are filled with is a gift. It is a pouring into our souls by the Holy Spirit, and it is through 
knowledge. It is by the truth that we are sanctified. And so what comes next is filled with all knowledge. So it's sort of a repetition. You're full of goodness. You're full of knowledge. And because you are good, you're going to hate what's evil. And because you have knowledge, you're going to be able to rebuke or admonish evil. And so he's saying, I'm confident, brethren, that you will be able to fight evil because you're filled with goodness, you're filled with knowledge, you're able to admonish others. Now, the idea that we see there in terms of the way the New King James has it, admonish one another, you could see the temptation there to go, well, we shouldn't really just go around admonishing the world, we should focus on admonishing each other, we should encourage each other to righteousness, point out each other's sins, there's a greater duty to deal with brethren. But a part of how we give people the gospel is by admonishing them, by rebuking them, by telling them they're sinning. The law of God shows them the need for the gospel. And so we are trained by our culture and by the effeminate church around us to not rebuke people with sin, to not rebuke people with the law of God. And in fact, we're also taught we shouldn't go to the law of God because not everybody agrees with the law of God. Well, I'll tell you what. God agrees with the law of God. And it doesn't matter if they do. And God can convict people of sin when they say, ah, the Bible, that's a silly book written by Stone Age men. Yeah, but you're still committing adultery, aren't you? There's a witness in the soul of every man that is the conscience. And we have that light that lights the minds of all men, bearing testimony with us when we bring the Scripture to people. There's a witness there. And there's a fear they can't escape when their conscience is convicted. We should argue with them. We should tear down every high thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And we should intersperse reminders. And God says this. There's the law of God. There's the argumentation to tear down. There's the presentation of the gospel. And we have to do all of those things. We need to tell people the gospel. Jesus Christ paid for the sins of his elect. We need to tell people the law. You shall not murder. We need to tell people what you've just claimed is absurd. You think the universe has been around forever? It was caused by what? By nothing? So you think nothing caused something? Have you thought about this at all? And so these things, as we can show them, this is sin. Your view is absurd. This is the gospel. As you have those things and present them, that is the proclamation that is powerful to bring repentance. That's the proclamation that's powerful to bring the knowledge of God. We have to be willing, we have to be willing to admonish others. And so the willingness to say that sin is sin, the willingness to say that sin is sin is a powerful part of the church. Now if we only rebuke sin that's outside of the church, the effect is that we look like we are self-righteous hypocrites. If we only rebuke our own sins, we will be powerless 
to overcome the wicked in the culture. We have to rebuke each other when we see each other in sin. And we have to rebuke the culture when we see the culture in sin. It requires both. They are not mutually exclusive. They are both good works, and they are both called for at different times. So Paul is confident concerning the Roman church that they have goodness and knowledge and capability to admonish. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Verse 14, he's just concluded this really long explanation of a bunch of doctrine. And you might have gotten to Romans 13. Imagine you're a member of this Roman church. And you've gotten to about chapter 15, verse 13. And you start to think to yourself, Self, what have we done to make Paul think he needs to tell us all these things? And then, verse 14, I have confidence about you, your goodness and knowledge, and you're able to rebuke. However, nevertheless, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I've written to you boldly, even though I'm confident in you as a church, to remind you of the grace of God and to remind you for the purpose of helping you Gentiles in Rome to be acceptable as an offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm writing to you because I'm teaching you truth to help you to be sanctified so that you can be an offering that's acceptable to God. So he's writing reminder. That word reminder is intended to say, I'm not saying you've never heard this before. And he's saying, I'm confident concerning you. I'm not saying you're not believers. Which means, when you hear the gospel preached, when you hear the law preached, when there's admonition, when there's false doctrines that are torn down, it's not because that means there's an expectation that the people there have never heard those things. If you've been in the church for very long, you'll have heard all of those things. But there's a need for a reminder. The need for a reminder is so that we can grow in sanctification, so that we can be acceptable in our service. And that was his thesis back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The second part is for the purpose. The second part of the book is for the purpose that we can present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And he tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul is writing to teach these things, not for the first time, because the reminder is necessary so that we have the words stored up in our hearts so much that we can prove from memory what is acceptable service to God. And verse 17. Therefore, I have reason 
to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the Gospel of Christ. And so, I have made it my aim to preach the Gospel. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written. This is from Isaiah. To whom He was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. The Gospel wasn't sent in prior age to the nations of the world. It was sent to Israel. The nations didn't hear. But the idea is, now the Gospel goes to the nations. They who did not receive it before, now they will and they'll see. Those who had not heard before, they'll hear now and they will understand. And so this going out to the nations, this apostolic work of Paul is the bringing in of the nations. And he has shown us that this was prophesied in the past. We've seen this in in other sections of the book of Romans. He laid the case out saying, there was always a plan to bring the nations in. And he's reminding again. He's, He's reminding. And it's funny how much Paul reminds. And he just explained to us how he reminds because we need to be reminded. Because in being reminded, it helps us to be sanctified. We need to go back to the same truths over and over again. Do you have any idea how many times I have read the Shorter Catechism? Do you have any idea how many times I've explained the Shorter Catechism to other people? And it never feels like a waste of time for me. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad that other people get to hear what I say about it. But it's really helpful for me. And so walking through that doctrine... Walking through the book of Romans for the umpteenth time. Walking through those things is valuable for me. I need to be reminded of these things. And so do you. Now in verse 17, Paul is saying, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. He's saying, I don't have anything to glory in myself, but I have reason to glory in Christ. I have reason to glory in Christ in the things that pertain to God. What are those things? That's the goodness that has been poured into me by the Holy Spirit. That's the the good works that have been done through me, that I was predestined to walk in, that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that were taught to me by the revealed Word, so that I was able to go out and do those things for the glory of God. Not by my own ability, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. Anything I've done, not worth boasting about. But if Christ did it through me, worth boasting about. Not as my own, but as Christ's. Paul is saying, he's spoken words that were spoken by him through the power of Christ. That's not just special revelation. That's preaching. That's admonishing. That's taking the Scriptures and reading them out loud. That's arguing from the Scriptures. Those words were the words that He spoke, but it was Christ working through Him. We can all speak the words of life. 
And every time he did a good work, every time he did something that God commanded, empowered by the Holy Spirit, seeking to apply that word, he was doing a work that was Christ's work accomplished through Paul. And that's true for us too. I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. He's, he has been sent out to preach the word and to do good works to make the Gentiles obedient. What is he trying to accomplish there? He's trying to accomplish the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Paul is going out to get the nations and to make them obey King Jesus. That's his goal. His goal is not to save a few. His goal is not to snatch a few souls from hell. His goal is to do that as the preemptive work before he takes over the place. His goal is to see the Word of Christ reigning. His goal is to see the nations obedient to Christ. To make the nations obedient to Christ. Verse 19, in mighty signs and wonders. So some of these works of Christ that are empowered by the Holy Spirit were mighty signs and wonders. You see this phraseology, signs and wonders. The most common place you're going to find this and the original place in the Bible you're going to find it is Exodus. Moses did signs and wonders, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. They're signs. Why are they signs? They're signs because they point to something. That's what all signs do. This way to Albuquerque. The signs point to something. What they point to is, this is a prophet of God, and the words are the words of God. Listen to them. Are miracles infallible proofs? They are not. Pharaoh's magicians, by demonic power, did some impressive signs and wonders. There are lying signs and wonders that are so persuasive that were it possible they would persuade even the elect so we can't look to signs and wonders as an infallible proof what they are is attention getters god's pretty good at gathering a crowd right some people have good showmanship they can get a crowd god's really good as a showman the whole of creation is his showmanship the whole of history is his showmanship He's designed the whole of history to show his attributes. And miracles are a part of that. They are signs that point to this is a speaker from God and the words he speaks are God's works. And the devil is very motivated, very motivated to present lying signs and wonders. They are wonders because they cause wonder. They cause awe. You see this and you go, that was the Red Sea. It was pretty flat before. Now it's a couple of walls, pretty dry in the bottom. 
That's pretty amazing. It's not dry anymore. There's a dead army in there. Pretty amazing. It's a sign. God wins. It's a wonder. Wow, that was fast. Signs and wonders. Paul was empowered to do signs and wonders by the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit of God. So that, from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the Gospel of Christ. Now, Jerusalem, eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. Illyricum comes up to the Adriatic, which is, if you've got a map of Europe in your mind, or the Mediterranean in your mind, you've got that Italian boot, and just to the east of it is the Adriatic Sea. So, Illyricum is that thing on the other side of that little pond. Hop, skip, and a jump away from Rome. So, Paul's got up to Italy. He's ready to go. Italy's a good stopping point for him to go take over Spain. That's what he's saying. I really want to see you guys. Really excited to see you. Maybe you can give me some meals on the way to Spain. I'd like to enjoy your company while I'm there. By the power of the Spirit of God, Paul did good works, spoke good words, did mighty signs and wonders, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Paul is saying, my goal is to get the gospel established there, to get a bridgehead, a beachhead established there, so that other people can finish the conquest of that land, so that those nations can become obedient to Christ. But I am establishing a forward operating base, and I'm moving on to get another one going. Because my goal is to harass the lines of supply of Satan throughout the world. Every one of these nations needs to obey Christ, and I need to establish an outpost there of light. Because it was prophesied that the people who hadn't heard, they're going to understand. So they need to hear. Remember back in chapter 10? How will they believe unless they've heard? And how will they hear unless a preacher is sent? And so he is the preacher sent to do that. That's his call as an apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. He's a messenger of God to the nations. Verse 22 for this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you. Right? That's why I couldn't come hang out. I was busy establishing forward operating bases in a bunch of countries on the way to you. It's like the best excuse for not calling back I've ever heard. Right? Also, there are no phones. For I will not. For this reason, verse 22, for this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first 
I may enjoy your company for a while. If I'm going to Spain, I want to stop. I want to be helped on my way. So he's asking for help. I want to spend time enjoying company with you. I want to be a blessing to you. And I ask for you to be a blessing to me. But before I do that, I finish the preaching tour up to the Adriatic. I'm going back to the Eastern Mediterranean. He's going, he says, verse 25, But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. And that word is it's the word deacon turned into a verb. Okay, I'm deaconing to the saints. Serving the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Okay, so, Jerusalem, you remember, they're selling off their capital goods there because the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm going to destroy this place in a generation. And so, the idea of long-term real estate value there going up is a bad plan. So, they're selling off their capital goods and they're providing for the needs of the poor. They're continuing to be persecuted in Jerusalem. And so, in selling off their capital goods and helping the poor, they've run out of capital goods. And running out of capital goods and being persecuted, they're having a hard time getting by. And so there's a need for help from other churches. And so Paul has been doing work and he's been avoiding taking pay for his work so as to avoid causing offense at those churches, but then encouraging them to help to provide for the church in Jerusalem. Verse 27, It pleased them indeed... And they are their debtors. And so the churches in Macedonia and Achaia are debtors to the church in Jerusalem. Why? For if the nations, the Gentiles, have been partakers of their spiritual things, and you're going to get that a lot better if you see the word spiritual there and you capitalize it. These are things from the Spirit. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the nations have been partakers of the Holy Spirit things from the Jews, you see how that fits in with the whole argument of the book so far? If they're partakers of these spiritual Holy Spirit things from the Jews, their duty is also to minister to them in fleshly things, natural things. Whatever is of the flesh is flesh. Whatever of the spirit is spirit, what John 3 says. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, you know, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. Nicodemus goes very literal. I'm going to get into my mother's womb and be born a second time. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things, Nicodemus? What is from the flesh is flesh. Okay? There's, you can have natural children by the structure of reality without Holy Spirit intervention. But nobody's going to be born the second time. Nobody's going to have spiritual life unless it comes from the Spirit. Whatever is of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is of the Spirit is spirit. People who are not believers can, can have a harvest of grain. They can find silver in mines. They can make those things. And those things aren't evil in themselves. They're evil if you use them in an evil way. They're evil if you don't use them for the glory of God. If you receive Holy Spirit blessings from somebody, you should seek to bless them with the natural things, with the 
things of the flesh. And so the idea here, that's this translated into material things, that kind of removes that. When you get rid of the capital S on spiritual and change fleshly into material, it kind of makes you think things that aren't material, things that are material, which is not the point. The Jews have given the Holy Spirit things, and so you can bless, should bless with the fleshly things, the natural things. And so that's that same principle of the idea of the worker treading out the grain should not be muzzled. It's the same sort of thing. Verse 28. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Okay, so I've been taking the gospel to these nations, setting up bridgeheads, setting up beachheads, getting the operation going, and now I'm going back and taking some of the plunder from those places that are being conquered back to those who commissioned the mission. And when I finish bringing the plunder back, then I'm going to come to you in Rome so that we can go plunder some more places. Therefore, when I perform this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Right, so I know it's been a long time. I know it's been a delay. I know we just write you this letter reminding you of a bunch of things that you've heard before. But when I do come, it's going to be with the full blessing of the gospel of Christ because I didn't skip over the other nations, I didn't abandon my duty, and I didn't fail to honor the Jews who sent this spiritual blessing by failing to bring back the natural blessing to them. Now, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Now, the way you read that in English, the natural way to look at that is to go, brethren, I'm begging you, I'm praying to you, I'm begging you, I'm asking you, through Jesus Christ. So wait, am I asking you for stuff through the mediation of Jesus Christ? Okay. And through the love of the Spirit, so now it's the Holy Spirit's empowering me to ask you, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So I'm asking you in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, that you pray with me? It is not what is being said. It's here that's being said. Brethren, I beg you to strive together with me in prayers to God for me. When you're praying, do it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the love of the Spirit. So there's this teaching here about prayer being by the mediation of Christ and being by the power of the Spirit. And he's saying, pray for me. Strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So he's begging for prayer. He's begging, he's begging for prayer together with him. He's not just saying, pray for me. I'm not going to pray for myself. You ever, that? you ever have anybody that you feel like you're praying harder for them than they're praying for themselves? Keep asking me to pray. Are you spending any time praying about this? And so this idea that 
there's, yes, we should ask other people to pray for us, and we should make sure that we're praying for it too. The striving in prayer. So striving together with me in prayers to God for me. And this is through the mediation of Christ. The prayers should always be through the mediation of Christ. And they should always be through the love of the Spirit. The love of the Spirit empowers us. We, we, are, we love, this love that comes from the Holy Spirit makes us that we love our neighbor and love God. That's the goodness that we are filled with by the Spirit. Verse 31, That I may be delivered from those in Judea who are disobedient. It says do not believe. They don't believe, and that's why they're disobedient. They're disobedient to the faith. But the idea here, this is supposed to be a sort of, um, this is a rhetorical attention getter. The Gentiles are being made obedient, but the Jews are disobedient. Okay, that's the that's the side by side there. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And so Paul is going back. He's going to Judea. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's asking that he would be delivered from the disobedient people in Judea and that the saints would find his service acceptable. Now, if this trip is the trip that is um, the one that's towards the end of Acts where Paul gets arrested and then is, you know, has this series of court cases where he's on his way to go see Caesar, if that's what this trip is, then... He was persecuted and brought into chains by those who were in Judea. And the saints, rather than really backing Paul, set him up for that to happen. They said, you know, everybody's complaining about you, that uh, you really like the Gentiles. Like, really? And some people are saying that you're encouraging the Gentiles to just hate the law of Moses. So what we'd like you to do is go finish out this Nazarite vow with people in the temple. Right? Paul goes and does that, and that's where he gets arrested. Okay, so the not full backing of the saints when he gets there causes him to receive the persecution of the Jews, causes him to be persecuted by Rome, causes him to appear in front of Nero, causes him to be put to death. Okay, that's the chain of events. So often, when persecution comes, the people who are on the front lines get handed over because the church is worried about their troublemaking. Let me ask you a question. The guys that are on the front lines that are preaching, the guys that are bold enough to actually go evangelize, the ones that are willing to do the fighting, who do you think the unbelieving are going to complain about? So, if you hand over or set up for extra burden the ones that are being bold, do you feel how like do you see how that might for Paul have felt like he wasn't really being supported by the saints? How the saints maybe didn't view his service as acceptable? He specifically asks for the Roman church to pray for him that he be delivered from the disobedient Jews and that the church in Jerusalem would find his service to be acceptable. Paul's going around, foregoing pay, 
getting money and collecting it to bring it back to Jerusalem. And the response is, thanks for that, Paul. Appreciate it. Now, there's this problem here. Could you please go publicly do this thing so that we can stop taking heat for you? And then the chain. Verse 32. That I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now, when Paul gets to Rome, assuming he didn't go to Spain, the way he got there was in chains. The way he got there was by appealing to have Nero hear him. So when he does arrive, we see in the book of Acts his arrival in Rome, and he's under house arrest, and he's preached a lot, and his preaching is already viewed as powerful, and there's people that are coming to hear him, and so we leave him kind of in that condition. The book of Acts ends with him preaching the gospel under house arrest in the process of going through his appeal. Okay, so that's how he gets to Rome. So, there's, is there a possibility he went to Spain after that, that he's released and then goes to Spain and then gets arrested again and then gets killed? That's possible. Some people understand the line of history would be like that. But this is how that time period, if you look at the chain of events in Acts, that's how this turns out. Those are the answers to the prayers that he asks for them to strive together with him in. Now, is he delivered from the disobedient Jews? Yeah, the Jews want to kill him. And Roman legionaries come out and take him out of the crowd and keep him from being killed. The Jews want to kill him. There's a bunch of people who made an oath to murder him. And I think it's his nephew comes and warns the guardian, the, the, the commander of the guardians there, and informs them that there's this plan to kill him. And he has a cavalcade of troops take him out of town to go and be able to deal with his appeal. So he's delivered from the unbelieving Jews. And I imagine... I imagine after this all happened that the Jerusalem church felt a little bit bad making him go to this public ceremony around the Jews with this Nazarite vow. And they probably were very thankful for the gift that had been delivered when they were eating it as opposed to starving. And they were also probably remembering the continued suffering that he was undergoing with appreciation at that point. So it sounds like the prayer was answered. And he was able to come to Rome in joy. It does not sound exactly like how Paul thought it would occur, though. But they're all answered. That I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he encourages them by calling a blessing upon them. That the God of peace be with you all. Now, God's peace, Irene, Shalom in Hebrew, this idea that you're free from strife, you're free from toil, you're free from poverty. There's this condition of blessedness, the enjoyment of good things. The idea is God is the God of peace. He's the God who brings peace. And so in the midst of all of this, 
in the midst of all this work, in the midst of saying, I want you, the saints at Jerusalem, to be good at rebuking people, at admonishing people, the God who gives peace be with you. The promise of the God of peace is not that there'll be peace because there'll be no conflict. The promise of the God of peace is that there'll be peace because we win. It's peace through victory. Peace through superior firepower. Prayer provides that. And so there's this command to strive together in prayer. And so I'll encourage you to look upon this and to say, I know that when we pray, prayers are acceptable to God, they will be answered. They will not always be answered in the way that we think they will be, but they will be answered in a way that is best for the glory of God and that is best for our ultimate good. The Apostle Paul certainly grew as he was over and over again presenting the gospel in public trials and presenting the gospel in prison and having people coming to him. The result of all that is that Praetorians, the men who were a part of the guard of Caesar's own house, some of them become believers. Caesar's household has infiltrated by people who won't say Caesar is Lord, but they will say Jesus is Lord. And so the bridgeheads don't just occur in these provinces on the outskirts of Rome, but in the heart of the empire, in the household of the emperor. The gospel is established. There are comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Marsh? Thank you for your teaching. Um, I actually just had a question about uh, your prayers this morning. Um, you're talking about um, Satan being bound more and more. Mm-hmm. Sure, so, not, so obviously an individual demon is bound or not bound, right? An individual demon is either bound or not bound. And so I think the idea of the binding of Satan has to do with Satan's reign, Satan representing the demonic kingdom as its king, right? He's bound in that he is no longer empowered to deceive the nations. And so there is this taking of the nations from him as, as plunder, right? There's this, this conquering that's occurring. So the... The other, the way of talking about binding is a progressive thing. I think you see individual demons being bound, individual demons being cast out of people, individual demons losing their sort of jurisdictional reign. Not that they have a legitimate jurisdiction, but they have a jurisdiction given to them by Satan, so it's a usurping jurisdiction in any case. But you have the removal of demonic power from jurisdictions, from persons, and those are individual bindings. And so in the sense that corporately the kingdom of Satan has binding that's occurring on the individual demons as there's individual victories um, and also as their power over individuals disappears you have individuals that are 
um, converted, and when they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they are no longer occupiable territory. Right? Demons can no longer um, uh, indwell them, possess them. Um, that, that's what I mean by it. And so I don't mean to suggest that the binding of Satan was a non-instantaneous uh, event. Okay. So I think the language, I could probably find a better way to say it to be more clear. Um, that's what I mean. Okay. Anything else? Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in prayer, and we ask that you would help us more and more to strive together in prayer. Father, we ask that you would help us to see your glory is manifested in the earth as the nations are brought to obedience to you, or they are brought under subjection to Christ. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see the ways in which you answer prayers, even when they don't seem particularly obvious to us. We thank you that you answered the prayer to cause the Apostle Paul to not be destroyed by the the unbelieving Jews, that you caused him instead to be delivered from them in Jerusalem so that that he was able to minister in powerful ways for years going forth. We thank you that you caused the gift that he brought to be helpful to the Jews there that had become Christians in Jerusalem. We thank you for caring for your church and causing them to flee Jerusalem and to be able to hide in Pella and Petra and to be able to carry on the apostolic word. We thank you for causing Rome to be subdued and causing the church to outlive it and to grind it to dust. We thank you for causing papal Rome to be subdued and weakened and to have the Protestant church be able to survive its anti-Christian oppression and to be able to even see the flower of Western civilization. Father, we ask that you would cause greater things to be done. That you would cause us to see your work. That you would cause us to not be afraid, but to be bold. That you would cause us to see and to be willing to work to see your glory more and more manifest in the earth. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We thank you for your righteousness that is displayed in the law. We thank you for the sanctifying righteousness that you give us more and more. We ask that you would give us strength to be willing to rebuke and to admonish, to be willing to admonish each other and to be willing to admonish the world. Father, we thank you that you have shown your righteousness in the predestination of all things. We thank you that you have shown your righteousness in how you treat Israel and how you treat the nations. We thank you that you have shown to us the righteousness of your law as a lamp unto our feet, that we would know more and more how to display your righteousness to the world in a rational service. And we ask that you would transform us after the image of Christ, that you would help us to be able to present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, that you would help us to be more and more holy, focused upon you and your glory, that you would cause us to be an acceptable offering to you in Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a rational people, giving a rational service. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.